Welcome to our newest adventure for first responder wellness. No one fights alone. In-depth conversations about mental health and culture in the first responder space. We're joined by your co-hosts, Austin Pedersen and Brad Shepard. Austin, we're back once again. Still up here in Utah, having a great time. It was freaking cold this morning. Welcome to Utah. Like, I don't know what else to tell you here. Like, you know, I, I have a family member that just moved from California to Idaho and she moved in September and she was like, oh, Idaho's beautiful mountains everywhere. Yet now she's like, I'd, I'd really like to come back to California like after winter. Like this is killing her. Well, I intentionally, uh, where I live now, I intentionally moved there for the sunset. I have a beautiful sunset scene. I will say the sunsets here are way better than Oklahoma. But this sunrise this morning yeah. was fucking amazing. Have you seen the sunsets here? Yeah. The red? Yeah. The red tint from... But I normally stay down in Orem with you. And mm -hmm. staying up here in the mountains this time, I'm not seeing the sunsets, but I'm seeing the sunrises. And they are... It's the inversion. So the inversion from all of the... The valley being all smogged up and everything turns yeah. the, the sunset bright red. It's like nothing you've ever seen. It's really, really healthy for us, obviously, right? For like sure. We should be outside during that time. I've been outside this morning. Well, it's been uh, it's been a pleasure being here this week and a joy to, to be able to to have conversations with some of the uh, some of the staff. And once again, we have uh, uh, another one of our wonderful uh, Chateau staff, uh, Marin Eberhard. 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 I messed it up again. Yeah. And we just did this. Yeah, you got to sound things out. Eberhard. Yeah. Just like I elementary did. school. Sound it out. That was me not practicing active listening. Marin, sorry. It's okay. Marin Eberhard is one of the clinicians here at Chateau. Welcome to the No One Fights Alone podcast, Marin. Thanks, Glad for to have you on. Me. Thanks. Yeah. So we're just sitting here uh, bannering a little bit about uh, uh, the Utah because uh, the the Oklahoma cold is different because of the wind, but humidity. What an yeah, we have we have that, but the elevation up here is is pretty crazy. But um, now you're uh, formerly Texas girl. I That's know you you so you can relate to that, but the humidity is pretty crazy down there in the in the Houston area, right? Yeah, born and raised. Texas? Uh, not born there, but been there large portion of my life. Yeah, yeah, because a lot of your background is military races weren't you raised as a military kid um not to the sense of like so my dad as i was a baby like finally transitioned out but my dad was a vietnam vet combat vet 101st airborne uh was there Famous. yeah in 1967 68 out of the offensive um saw a lot he was a lieutenant um in a platoon and so yeah i mean i consider myself like one year in vietnam equals a lot of years outside of combat there's an exponential uh growth pattern to uh the impact of how much he saw yeah 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 i would say and and just not only what he saw there but you know what he came home to sure right because sure. that was had a huge impact and also you know one of the things that i'm why i'm so passionate in in working with military and and why I came to Chateau was because of that focus um, is because growing up with someone who struggled with um, PTSD, suicidal ideation, depression, anxiety, and and watching that my whole life and and being very aware of those moments. Um, you know, and recognizing like our family didn't have access to services and it wasn't a thing back then. I mean, even to the point that um, when I went to graduate school at the University of Houston um, in 2005, I literally had to make my dad sit down and fill out his VA benefits because he just couldn't do it, wouldn't do it. Just So were the VA benefits not accessible or more um, maybe not encouraged to participate or maybe your dad just didn't do it, uh, in, involve that side of who he was. Cause I see a lot of people who just, I'm done. I don't want anything to do with it. It's so hard to even go back there. I mean, was that kind of where your dad was with a lot of that? 
No, I think it was a combination of all three. So what I would say growing up is that, and as I get older, you know, I get clearer about it, is that Vietnam was always part of my life in the sense of it was always part of his life. You know, growing up, my dad, one thing that, and again, this kind of is my my history and, and my why as to how I became a clinician is he, as we would go to late, much later in his life, because for a while there, yes, he had to disconnect and he was like, I'm out. I'm not going to have anything to do with this. It's too painful. Um, a lot of moral injuries, survivor's guilt. And so as he got older and then started going to his reunions and that was a huge shift for him. But as I started going to the reunions with him and meeting with his men and, and hearing them, you know, the reunions were in Oklahoma and they were usually at like some kind of campsite and they would all gather around the fire late at night and, you know, talking, some drinking and stories would start to flow, right? about their experiences. And one thing that I learned in that moment that was so unique and different, I, I feel like about my dad was that we grew up and he always was telling us stories. And sometimes that was really hard and painful, you know, as a kid. And also I think it really laid the groundwork or the framework for me to realize how important our stories are. And the difference it makes in sharing our stories with people because his men and if they had their spouses with them or maybe some adult children, you know, they would start to listen to these stories and they would say, like, I've never heard these stories. And for me, I learned in that moment, like how much courage that took for my dad to show up and be so vulnerable about what he had experienced. And again, there were times which I look back now and I'm like, ooh. I was a bit young for that story. <laughs> yeah. There was a lot there. And also, you know, I think it's led me to my purpose and my passion. So, yeah. So, so let's keep tracking there a little bit. I, yeah. I'd love to circle back to some of the VA stuff, but, okay. but let's, let's still paint a picture for the listeners of who, uh, who Marin is. So you were talking about, went to grad school, mm -hmm. uh, walk us through a little bit about who, who you are professionally, just to kind of give a baseline of, of, uh, of talking today. Yeah. So I graduated from the University of Houston. I had the pleasure and opportunity to have Brene Brown as one of my professors. Um, oh, very nice. Nice. Yeah. yeah. Before she went, Blew up. Yeah, went viral and yeah, big yeah. and huge. Ted and, Talks. Yeah. So from the beginning, I also really connected with her. There was one point when it was like my first week. No, it was my second week in graduate school. And I was kind of questioning like is this my place? And however you want to think about it, serendipity, fortune, you know, fate. Um, Brene used to only teach second year students. I was a first year student. And my professor that was supposed to teach our class got sick. And so Brene substituted that one class. And she came in and talked about her research on shame. And again, this is like in the beginning before she even wrote her first mm -hmm. book. Um, and I just connected with her so much and I just thought, Hey, whatever it is you do, I want to be a part of that. And so, yeah, so stayed, graduated, um, from there worked in a couple different fields, actually went to England for a little bit to do international social work. And, um, since then I've just like found my passion in, in trauma and, um, obviously military and, you know, helping those that, that don't usually have the services that they need. So talk about that cultural difference of somebody in a different country, because it is way different, I'm assuming. And the approach that you have to have is way different. Yeah. So, um, I worked in a hospital in Epsom, England and, uh, you know, cause I wanted to learn about the medical side there and, and, um, socialism and, and all that kind of stuff and how different it is here, you know, and I, you know, I think what I learned and I also, you know, circling back to my dad, cause he has such a present in my life. Um, 
recognizing my dad used to tell me you can go anywhere in the world and find good people. You know, he shared a story with us growing up about a time. So towards the end of his tour, he was assigned to work with the Vietnamese and training them. And he was in a camp with them. And all of a sudden, this Vietnamese farmer came up to them and was carrying his, um, I think he was 10, 10 year old son. And he was pleading for help. And my dad had a translator. And my dad was asking, you know, what happened. And the translator informed him that the man, his son, which after the medics looked at him, realized he was dead. So the story behind it is that um, this farmer, his son was sick. And so he went to a, a local medicine man and he gave him some heroin to give to his son. And he told the man, like, hey, just give him a little bit, right? Um, and so the man, the farmer, thinking, okay, well, if a little bit is going to help, I'll give him a lot. And he ended up overdosing his son. And when my dad, as this is getting translated, when my dad heard this, you know, he's 101st Airborne, like he, he you know, just super passionate. He always has been about children, um, was going to kill him. Like he just was like, you know, this is not acceptable. This is not okay. I'm going to kill him. And his men had to hold him back. And so as he was doing that, um, you know, his men held him back. They took the farmer and his son away. And my dad was just in his head, fuming, emotional reaction. And um, later on that evening, as the custom is there, as you're talking about that, um, they were they were doing um, they were burning the child's body. And my dad said that he had this moment where he went out to the bonfire and he was looking across and he saw the farmer and he was crying. And he said it was that moment that he realized, you know, here's this grieving father. And he recognized, you know, where his perspective as an American and, you know, you do the right thing and this is how it's supposed to be done, that he recognized, like, you know, he was able to find him and view him as a human sure. in that moment, right? Yeah. And so he used to tell me all the time, you know, when I was struggling, hey, you can lean into your love or you can lean into the hate. And he's like, for me, I've had to work really hard at that. And he's like, I've never been sorry for doing that. You know, we were, we were recently talking uh, with Jackie about, uh, you know, this disconnect. And I think, I feel like uh, a lot of this disconnect is that we don't see people, the whole person. Uh, you know, there's a lot of disgruntled, unhappy, hurting people. Uh, but we not we're not curious enough often at times to look past that enough to see maybe what's causing it or is there something else going on or wow what a powerful lesson of actually just saying hey you can find good people out there and, and we'll, the lesson there is you know looking beyond that we, that crazy shell we judge people by one singular action right a majority of the time like if we don't have a pers close personal relationship with somebody we have created an idea of who they are in our head from a single action. Sure. That's the tough part. Like, that's not a trauma-informed lens, obviously, but that's a human nature Well, Mark lens. Twain says everybody's life is a comedy, drama, and a tragedy. Mm -hmm. So are you willing to look past that enough to see who they are? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that goes to, like, identity. And so circling back to your question about England, you know, I think it's how you go into those situations or circumstances. You know, me going into it with the belief like I'm going to find good people and, you know, even going over there just by myself. And, you know, a lot of times I'd get the question like, you're here by yourself? Like, you know, and, you know, again, my answer was always circling back. Like there's always going to be good people. And I learned a lot, you know, and for me that that is something that I always want to find the space of you know, am I open to learning? Am I open and being receptive, like in this present moment to gain the knowledge that I need that hopefully will turn into wisdom as I continue to grow and have more experiences, a greater perspective, a greater understanding about purpose, identity, and growth as a human. So it's pretty clear that your dad had a, uh, a powerful influence on your life. And so I'm circling us back to kind of this, this veteran uh, passion of yours. So, uh, you know, that 
tell us more about you know your involvement on that veteran side and maybe some of the work that you've done in that veteran community um, of of your your career. Yeah, so I've worked with quite a few veterans on an individual basis, and again, you know, I think part of that is that because of the way the military is designed, right? It's very specific. It's It has its procedures. Everything has a purpose and a reason. And, and that has an impact, right, as you are coming out of that environment or setting because things become very, you can get into the mindset of a very black and white type thinking. And it also, you know, a couple things about it is that when you come out, like when you're in the military, you're on base and you look at stripes or you look at, you know, what what position somebody has or or where they're at, all of that is very clear, right? You can look at it, you can see it, you can know it. Very defined. Yes, that's mm-hmm. the word. And so when you get out of that and you return to civilian life, there's all, you know, as Stacy would say, like 322 degrees of gray, right? And especially if you're a combat veteran, you can't read, you know, you're taught to read things in a certain way. You go into survival mode, you respond to your training, and then you come back in the civilian world and it's like, so I can look at you and go, you know, yeah, I'm going to have my assumptions, you know, I'm going to think about it and go, well, okay, I'm reading this guy, right? And it's just not as clear. And I think that's the struggle, too, that we learned after Vietnam, you know, and then in Afghanistan and Iraq, right? And that's where a lot of soldiers struggle is because who the defined enemy was, was became very unclear, which creates that moral injury. And so for me in working with them, it's always about creating a safe space to share their story, all of it. Because there's a lot of darkness associated with that, right? Because my belief as humans, like we're not designed to go to that space or mindset. And yet there are very definitive times in which we have to in order to do the right thing, in order to protect others, in order to show up in a way that is going to keep us and others alive. And so when you get out it's like you have all this training to go in but there's so there's not enough training to get out right and to do that huge transition because it is a huge transition so creating a safe space for them to be totally authentic in their stories the no one fights alone podcast is excited to announce the launch of our new merchandise line now you can show your support for our mission by purchasing one of our hats shirts or hoodies Our merchandise not only represents our brand and message, but also supports a great cause. A portion of all proceeds will go towards helping individuals and families affected by mental health. Wearing our merchandise not only spreads awareness for our podcast, but also serves as a reminder that no one has to fight alone. Join us in showing your support and spreading the message of hope and community by purchasing one of our No One Fights Alone items today from our website, nofapodcast.com, nofapodcast.com. Do you feel like there's a there's a, um, a change in, I know in the first responder arena, I feel like the stigma is slowly starting to uh, change a little bit. Do you sense that in the veteran community? Because I'm not as, con- I'm not a veteran, so I'm not as connected to that. I have some friends there, but... Do you feel like that's changing similar to the, similarly to the first responder culture about, hey, it's okay to connect with the Marins in, in the world to live a life better than what I'm living now? Yeah, I mean, I think we're headed in the right direction. I still think we have a lot of work to do mm-hmm. in that, especially as like systems. Sure. You know, I'm a social worker. I look at systems. You know, our our system, I would say having spent numerous hours at the VA, you know, in Houston, which is a massive... It's like the biggest VA in the country, isn't it? Entity. Yeah. Yeah. It means just... Yeah. It's massive. Um, You know, there's a lot of... How long were you there? Sorry, I should have asked this earlier. How long were you at the 
Were you at the Houston VA? No, I didn't work there. Oh, it just okay. taking my dad there. Oh, okay. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, and helping him get, you know, whatever services yeah. he needed. So, and advocating for him. Sure. Right. Um, so, yes, I think we're we're making progress. I think especially with, with understanding PTSD. I mean, now, you know, my dad, back in the day, like, we we're starting to understand, you know, I think the Vietnam vets really helped push that forward, the concept of PTSD. And yet we didn't have the technology that we do now. And that's been critical. That's been huge because now we can study brains in all sorts of different circumstances, situations, and we're understanding more about the impact of how it truly alters your brain, right? Like your perception your ability to find reason, logic in certain situations is going to not be there. And so, you know, I think especially like in the military, you're just you're taught to here's a situation I need to problem solve that and I need to act. And then outside of that in the real world and not having it be so defined in a black and white kind of situation, you know, your brain, it just shuts down and that's a normal, natural response. And people need to hear that because they start to get, you know, confused. I mean, recent client that we had here at Chateau, I mean, so dedicated, so motivated, you know, just his whole life, like military for several years, then first responder, still a first responder, and had spent his whole life looking at a situation learning how to problem solve and then acting on that, right? With all of this logic. And then his brain just shut down. He just couldn't do it anymore because he had never talked about his whole story and everything that he had been through. And so he, when he came through Chateau, I mean, it was really, one of the things I love about the Chateau is like when you see these guys who for, you know, anywhere from, 30 years to five years, like sit down and share their whole story and can, can connect with their authentic self after that. And the emotions with their authenticity is powerful. Well, I know for me personally, uh, there's, there's a handful of stories that I will never share, but to maybe a handful of people because they, there's a lot of people that cannot handle the details of some of those stories. And it's, it's that, you know, it's that painful. I cannot imagine, you know, I wasn't ever in war and, and that type of scene. Uh, but I've seen my share of pain, hurt, heartache, death, uh, gore. Um, so I can't imagine, you know, some of these guys saying there's no safe space for me to unpack this. Well, there's also the issue of, you know, as, as a whole, uh, there's not a lot of clinicians that they can do that with as well. Sure. Right. If you're looking at the whole number of clinicians in the country versus, you know, that's, that's the problem also. There well, are plenty that I, I, can, by, by the way. We've met a ton. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. With, with, without complaining about those, I think we should highlight the ones that actually Absolutely. do. And, yeah. Maren, thank you for, for that because you you can see the passion about this and really the, um, the opportunity and this is highlighting Chateau. I know, but this is the, the podcast is about highlighting a lot, but we do that at Chateau. We create that safe space. You help create that safe space of saying, Hey, come in here and tell your story. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I appreciate that. Is that, is that, is the connection of that a little bit to hearing your dad's stories back in the day of saying, I recognize this need. Mm hmm. Right. Yeah. And I think to your point, like in sharing our stories, we don't, you know, it's not like, hey, I should put this on social media or like right. I need to tell 500 people. Right? right. Because obviously, yes, like we don't. And this is Brene's work, but sharing our story with someone who's earned the right to hear the story. Sure. Right. And that's being able to find those that's good powerful. people. Mm -hmm. Right. Where is that person or persons? And it doesn't have to be many. It can just be a couple that have the space, have the ability, that have the awareness and the empathy to hear my story, whatever that story is, right? And be able to say, like, I see you, I see all of you. And 
even if I don't know what to say, you know, again, this is Brene, I'm just so glad you shared, right? Because a lot of times it's not, I think we can get, make things too complex and it's not necessarily about, okay, I've shared this really dark part of my history or my life and I need someone to fix it. You know, there's a quote that I love about grief, which for me, you can't talk about veterans without talking about grief, right? On so many levels. And there's a quote that I love by David Kessler, who's a grief expert, and he he just talks about the power of witnessing grief. When you have someone that can say, hey, I see that grief in you, and call it what it is, you know, and not try to fix it for anybody, but just recognize because of that grief, your life has been forever altered. And that's okay, because we're going to learn how to not get rid of it, not not say, hey, that doesn't exist, but hey, how do we make that manageable so that you can continue to show up in the ways that you want to show up that is authentic to you? So this is a topic that we don't often talk about uh, enough, uh, which is the grief piece. Uh, I'm fascinated by that. Uh, let's let's visit that a little deeper. Um, recently, um, I... I share that sentiment because I was listening to somebody who said who was unpacking a lot of their story and it was so heavy and I didn't do anything. And this was, this is Chateau, but I, I didn't do anything other than just say, I see you, I, I see you. And they just broke down. They just completely, they just completely broke down. Uh, and it was that moment of unpacking that grief and unpacking that story and them just being heard and seen. So let's let's give us a little bit more about your take with this grief and how people how that impacts people and where they how they carry it, uh, maybe how they could carry it better, how they could unpack it, how it could be healthy for them. Give us a little bit of Marin's take on that. Yeah. So I think kind of the base point is that for years and years we were taught that grief happens in stages like Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, right? Mm-hmm. Five. The five stages. Five of stages. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. So David Kessler actually worked quite a bit with her and he has a great book, um, Finding Meaning, which he's added as a sixth part of grief. The thing is that her work got misinterpreted and then it just took off, went viral. And she never intended those to be stages that you move through. It's hers was saying, Hey, look, this is like a framework around grief and it doesn't happen in stages. And it doesn't mean that you can't go through different stages throughout your entire life. Right. Or through the different parts of grief. Right. And so I think that's the first thing that we need to start changing about the dialogue. But if I could pause and engage in that, that, yeah. that, that is a very societally accepted uh, part of grief. I mean, most people will say, uh, you know, I'm in anger or I shouldn't be here. I should move on to, I mean, this is a, that's, that's a very socially accepted um, those five stages thinking that there's like some type of timeline with them uh, or, you know, a marker. Well, I should have already been past this by now. And, I, I think that's a I think that's a very well known uh, part of grief that is mis- very vastly misunderstood. That you could be all over the map with grief. Well, I think everyone teaches you that, right? Like when when I lost my brother and went through that, I think I've I've seen a total in ten years. I think I've seen a total probably like four different therapists due to like location, change in insurance, and you know that kind of thing. I think every single therapist has talked about the five stages of grief with me specifically and on what stage I was in at that point yeah, in my life. Yeah. And it's just not factual. Like if you go back into her research, that is not how it was ever intended to be. It's not what it was intended to be. Correct. And I think it's helpful for people to know and understand that because again, as you said, like we can, we are our own worst critic. We get so many messages about suck it up, soldier on, just move forward, you know, you should be at this, why are you still, you know, having these feelings? And that happens in so many ways. And when we're taught 
on the logic side of it, of grief, in that, hey, there's not going to be like a time frame, right? Grief is unique to each one of us and it shows up differently. And where you're at, you know, a big thing for me as a therapist, and, you know, I learned this from my mentor, is starting where people are at. You know, not trying to say, hey, where you're at is wrong or you shouldn't be there or, you know, why aren't you further along? But starting where you're at in that process and having it be okay. It's not right or wrong that you're there. But what is important is recognizing and creating an awareness around it and how it shows up in you and in your body and also how you can let other people know where you're at. And there's so many things that happen in life that is connected to grief and we don't name it that way, right? We call it other things. We call it anxiety. We call it depression. We call it, you know, addiction. And the truth of the matter is, is when somebody can slow us down enough to say, hey, you're grieving. And it's just like a light bulb goes off, you know? Oh, I'm angry all the time. I'm raging all the time. Yeah, you're grieving. And that's part of grief is having that anger. How do we move it in your life so that, again, you reconnect with your authenticity and it becomes a way of managing it that is healthy and so that you can process it, not only logically, but also in your body. Grief shows up in our body and that's another huge piece that we don't often connect, right? I mean, I tell my 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 people all the time, you can't think your way out of trauma. You have to feel your way through. And that's a hard thing to do because, again, we get so many messages that tell us that is not, you know, feelings. And especially, I think, with men, you all can correct me if I'm wrong, you know, you're taught to not feel, and women are taught that too, but in a different kind of way, um, not show up, not, not be authentic in your emotions, right? Because that can signal a lack of control. And so it kind of goes again to that, those extreme ends. Yeah. I, I also want to point out that there's a, there's a misnomer that I get with a lot of people that grief has to be like a, a death. Yeah. It has to be associated with the loss of uh, a loved one or a, a, yeah. you know, a person that doesn't have to be that it that. comes there's so far beyond uh, those you know I worked in the survivor community for for so long and that was the understanding but you realize hey this is this is far it's vastly more than just the loss of a person yeah like there's there's parts where people need to grieve the fact that they didn't get to have a childhood or grieve the fact of an opportunity that they you know, had come across and they failed or lost or, or whatever it is. Like that's when you say it comes out in different ways, depression, anxiety, like that, that hit for me because people just think it's that it's like, no, 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 there's a deeper thing down there and you haven't dealt with the grief of whatever happened. Yeah. And I think more recently, you know, I really connect the COVID pandemic to grief. I mean, that was a huge change for us, for our society and the world you know, so much happened in that time. And I, my personal belief is that, you know, we don't talk enough about the increasing mental health crisis in the past few years and that connection with that. I mean, people lost financials, like, People lost loved ones. People lost their sense of identity. Like all these things that we, all these external things that we used to try to regulate ourselves to feel, you know, quote unquote normal, were all taken away. Connections. Connections. You, you know, you were you were forced into isolation, mm-hmm. and and that's not just physical isolation. There was a lot of uh, other components of isolation that you were you were forced into through pandemic. That you and that's all. That's loss. It was just, it was piles, just loss, 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 loss. Maybe your job, maybe, you you know, finance, maybe homes. Loss of coping mechanisms also. Because yeah. you got to think a lot of people that I think are struggling, part of that is the fact that they lost some type of coping tool that they were using before. And that could be the gym, you know, as a very blanket one. That could have been restaurants, right? Like their thing was to go out and eat and have the experience 
all those coping tools that they had used for their entire life were gone. So and, we're so we're clearly talking about you know we're clearly talking about something that's uh, fundamentally impactful to you know s- thousands of people out here, and we've identified a problem. If we talk solution based, uh, if we talk a little bit of, of solution stuff, and and obviously. You know, we're huge proponents on here of therapy, but we're also proponents of self-care and self-help. Like what, what uh, when we start talking about grief, what are some things that people can just naturally do themselves? Maybe not naturally. Maybe that's not the right word. Maybe uh, inherently, personally themselves uh, to recognize, hey, this may be a grief issue. And here's what Marin said I could possibly do about this to help. Uh, you know, move past or get through some of this grief? What would those, what would you say to people there? So I think it, it always starts with awareness, right? Getting really clear about what it is, what emotion we're feeling in that moment, right? Because if I'm feeling anger and I connect my anger to, you know, I had a bad day at work or my kids driving me crazy or my spouse or my partner, you know, what we do to take care of ourselves in those moments is going to look and feel very differently than if we say, hey, I'm in anger because I'm grieving right now. And so my self-care needs to look different. Or, you know, I'm in denial. I'm disconnecting. I'm numbing. I'm, I'm, I'm not present in this moment. Again, when we can recognize that it's associated with grief, our self-care is going to look different. And so one of the things that I talk a lot about is, is the practice of mindfulness. It's being present in the moment and giving ourselves permission to feel what we need to feel. And that's a really hard thing to do a lot of times because our brain is going to go, whoa, too painful, don't want to do that. And it's going to try to jump over the emotional piece and try to get again to the solution. The thing with that is that our brain doesn't necessarily care what solution we come up with it rewards us anyway, even if it's not the most accurate or most helpful solution. So we want to practice mindfulness and being really present and aware, acknowledging our emotion and not judging it. It's not right or wrong that I feel that way right now. And I always tell my people, I use the word right now and yet. It's not wrong that I feel that way right now. Or it's not wrong that I haven't found meaning in this loss yet because we want to keep hope right we want to believe that we can again reconnect with our authentic selves show up in a way that is healthy for ourselves and for the people that we love and care about and so when we can slow down in mindfulness getting aware so that we can get really clear and use what energy we have to really help us find that sense of healing I think the thing about grief and, you know, for me, as I've, you know, struggled with it in my personal life, I mean, you know, talking about loss and COVID, you know, my older brother, he was 13 months older than I were, I am to the day. And um, yeah, he died at the age of 49 due to COVID and it was completely unexpected. And so as I find myself in these processes, I have to really understand and have multiple tools available to me at each time so that, you know, one time I might go to the gym. Mm -hmm. One time I might need to go out to a restaurant with some friends and just feel, quote unquote, normal. Sometimes I need to talk to a therapist and say, hey, this is really hard for me. I'm feeling overwhelmed. And again, none of those are right or wrong, but we need to have access to a lot of different things at different times. Journaling, that's a huge one. There's a lot of power, again, in not only knowing our story, but putting our story to paper, on paper, that allows us to really reflect and see, you know, see what I need, what, what comes next in this process, and figuring that out. Um, you know, there are going to be times like, hey, we need to like disengage our brain because it can be too overwhelming. So movies, music, any of those things. We love movies. Yeah. Yeah. Well, first off, I didn't realize that about your brother. Sorry for your loss. That That's 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 heavy. But this, what comes to mind is that this, you know, I, I 
try to stay in tune with because of this no one fights alone podcast i try to stay in tune with uh some of the social media stuff and i i struggle because i come from a generation that that's not but um you know there's a lot of self-help and self-care things out there but i feel like it falls short it's more theory based of power through it you can do this um but something you said a while ago really resonated with that's all well and good until you actually start to feel and then it's more run like i this is hard you know the concepts of these people like david goggins and jocko and Joe Rogan, you know, the, uh, Cameron Haynes, you know, these people who, you know, I've, I've read their books. They're amazing. Uh, but what falls short in some of those books is how difficult, I mean, they describe it in the books of how difficult that process is. But when you're actually walking into that fire, it's, it gets pretty wild. It gets pretty hard, really, really hard. Well, that, that's mental health as a whole, though. I mean, like, that that's an issue when you're talking to people who want statistics of success. So first off, success is relevant. We all know that in this room, but people don't really know what their idea of success is. Also, there's an incredible variable for people that are working through their issues because, like, they could overcome some one aspect of grief, but they have 15 others going on. So it has that become quote-unquote success right like that's that's a huge problem that we have in like mental health as a whole there is so much dependent on the individual to put in the work and to do the the things that are recommended by the professional and the majority of the time people who fail don't do those things but even people who do them sometimes it doesn't work out for them well, so many times, I mean, and obviously all three of us have experienced this, but so many times you're in that grind and you're really asking a lot of self-reflective questions. Is this, is this ever going to end? Where do I reach the other side? When does hope start to take over? When does this really take on? And, and those are really dark questions of, or can be really dark questions of this is, this could be me forever of just grinding it out. And I've had enough. I'm ready for a, a drink or I'm ready to run, you know, then I'm ready to numb. Right. And I, I would say to that, like, that's when we're back in our logic side of our brain, right? We want the solution. We want the certainty. And grief is uncertain, which is why it can be so powerful, why it shuts down so many people, especially if they're not really clear that that's what they're experiencing, and again, it takes that, and that's why I just always go back to, am I present? Am I mindful? Like, what's happening around me? Am I creating an awareness of where I'm at in this moment? Because when we do try to jump too far ahead, it can feel so overwhelming. I mean, it feels overwhelming to me, you know, and I'm supposed to know what I'm doing. And so when we can slow down enough to say, okay, yes, I recognize I have that thought, and I don't have to go there right now, again, right now. Like, I can be here and recognize, like, I'm feeling overwhelmed. I'm feeling stressed. I'm sad. I miss my person. I miss my job. I miss, you know, connections. I miss being able to do the things that I used to be able to do. And that's okay to have that feeling. It's not right or wrong. And we don't have to over, this is Kristen Neff's work, but we don't have to over-identify with it. And say, that's, that's my feeling forever. Because what we all know in this room is that feelings change, feelings pass, you know? And that's part of, again, the fear. Like, people are like, well, if I go into grief, I'm never going to get out of it. No, you will. You will absolutely get out of it. And you have to take the risk and be vulnerable to step into it, to find your way through the process. And... Emotions always change because we're human and we're designed to. And that's, to me, again, in the grief, the hope and the beauty of being human, that we can do that. Our brain, our bodies, our souls, our spirits, whatever you want to call it, is designed for healing. And it's that ability to to slow down enough to recognize, like, I'm... I have what I need inside of me. I just need to reconnect with it. 
because I've been disconnected for whatever reason, you know, insert problem. And we are much more capable than we're taught to believe. Oh, yeah. Like I I was talking to someone uh, the other day and he mentioned something that was actually really cool. Like it's it's along those lines of like it's being it's okay to feel some certain things. I mean, he related it a little bit to substance abuse, but he relates it to his mental health, which or PTSD nightmares, whatever it may be. But, you know, um, I don't know who put the study out, but it's a trigger, right? Like an emotional trigger or a trigger for alcohol, substances, whatever. If you do not feed that trigger, the average, the longest that it usually lasts is five minutes. So what he did for his grief and loss portion is when he had those emotions, he turn his Apple watch on and you put a timer on and he would think about it for five minutes. He would spend five minutes working through and being like, yeah, that was sad or that sucked. You know, oh, uh, uh, you know, that memory really hurts. And when he got to five minutes, he'd be like, okay, on to the next thing and would change focus completely. And it allowed him to give them the time that he needed to go over some and permission sh- and permission. And he's not shoving it down. Sure. Right, he's not just like, oh, I can't think about that. Mm-hmm. Can't think about that. Turn my phone on or whatever. He goes, no, 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 let's let's think about it for five minutes, and then when it comes up again later, I'll do the same thing until I've worked through. And that's been the game changer for him. And he he does not struggle with substance use, but he heard that tip and related it to his trigger memories, and then got through it that way. It's a really cool little process that I thought worked really well. well I, 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 and and again, we're just providing tips, experiences that could potentially be tips, but I uh, I would share something very similar, maybe uh, a tip, which I fundamentally accepted it as permission. I had a mentor tell me, uh, you're going to have bad days and that's okay. Your good days are going to be few and far between and your bad days are going to be a lot. And then you're going to start to transition to your bad days becoming fewer and your good days getting more. It's going to increase. And then over a period of time, you're going to realize, hey, I haven't had a bad day in a while. And your good days are going to be strung together a lot. And then you may have a bad day. And then you're going to look at that and say, well, why am I having a bad day? But the reality is you're going to have bad days. It's life. That's life. About time, you know. But in that, in that, Later in that, when I was really thinking about it, there's a permission that's given that, that I received, maybe is a better way to put it, that I received in that saying, okay, the bad days are, bad days exist and they're going to be here and, you know, accept it, embrace it, feel it, lean into it. Journaling is a big part still for me is a big part of, you know, my recovery process and it's impactful to say, you know, there's a couple, there's a couple of my journals, like I'm having a shitty day and it's a hard pressed into the, into the, you know, but my good days are strung together a lot, you know, but the, the, in that moment of permission of saying, Hey, it's okay to, to feel so. Yeah. And I love your example because I think, and this is also something that I think can be helpful is it, it gave that person, you know, he was intentional with his grief, Right. And when we're intentional with something, right, we have a purpose in it. And when we can be intentional about allowing ourselves that time to grieve for whatever the grief is associated with, then we're being intentional, which is different than just allowing the grief to overcome us or overwhelm us or, you know, take over our brain. And, you know, then we're in an emotional flood and the logic disconnects from it, right? And so when we're really intentional and not over-identifying with it, right, where it's like everything is shut down, everything's awful, like I'm never going to come out of this. And we, we certainly will have moments of that. And when we're not in those moments, it's really critical to remind ourselves of like, again, when we're in those moments, that will pass. It doesn't have to become my whole identity. It's a part of my experience here. And there's so many other experiences that I can connect with that. Does grief have to be a, a direct correlation to loss? So I think just by clinical definition, I would say yes. You know, where, or it can be something that is a perceived loss, right? Maybe we didn't actually lose something, but it's our perception. It's of the way it. we see it. Yeah. And so. Or feel it. 
maybe not just see it, but both. Yeah. I think it's both, you yeah. know, because we use both. You know, we need to use both. We need to use our head and our heart, right? And so I think it's both. So I think it's about, you know, kind of along, you know, there's so many definitions of trauma and I think there's a lot of definitions of grief and how people define it or what that means. And so I think what I go back to is, you know, being human and what I identify with and how it makes me feel. If I identify that with trauma, then again, not right or wrong. That's what it is. If I identify it as grief, not right or wrong, that is what it is. And because again, we want to get really clear about the energy that we're using in that process so that we can accurately and in a way that's helpful and healing, find the tools to help move it through. So let's, uh, let's transition a little bit here to, um, to some chateau work um, as we kind of uh, transition into maybe some some of the modalities that I think we want to talk about today, which is uh, accelerated resolution therapy. I know you you're very passionate about this as well. Uh, when you and I've talked about this, you've you you can see it on your face of how excited you are about using this. Uh, so I know we're taking a hard left turn here, but but for the listeners, I don't want to leave this off the table and make make sure that we talk about this. Well, I mean, it could be part of grief too. Like part of this oh, modality sure. is working sure. through grief. But you know, we've we've had people talk about brain spotting. We've had people talk about EMDR. I think part of the reason you know ART doesn't get talked about a ton is, relatively speaking, maybe it's a little bit newer. Um, my personal belief is it's not marketed as well. That's just the the marketing side of me coming out. So a lot, as many people have heard about it, but, and I've never done it out of the the three I just mentioned. Um, but I've heard amazing things about it and, and how people have gotten through the various issues that they have. So I, I am, I love it's accelerated resolution therapy. And I love this process because it is an offshoot of EMDR, and yet it's very unique and specific in the ways that we use it. And it completely falls in line with what we've been talking about, veterans and grief. Um, they've done a bunch of studies using ART and specifically with first responders and military. And they did a, a huge study at Walter Reed, and they found that this was something that was beneficial, life-changing, altering, in that what it does is we take a, a memory and we process the original memory along with the emotions and sensations that we experience in our body, and then we help find and create a new memory in place of this original memory that's associated with trauma or grief or, you know, anything else. And the reason why I'm so passionate about this is because it can be a game changer in a couple of sessions. Because, I mean, let's be honest, like, this is just Marin's opinion of therapy. Um, who has the money to go to therapy for the rest of their lives? Or know, time. Or time, right. Or energy. Right. And so, again, it's so effective and it can happen in a couple of sessions and it allows us to move forward with our life. And I think for me, any type of therapy, you know, that's what we want to do. It's about, again, for me, and this is for my men, it's not how well you do with me. It's how well you do without me. You know, I want you to be successful. I want you to be happy. I want you to be out there living life because that is what we're designed to do. And so this therapeutic model can do that in a way that is con condensed and, and accurate and also provides a lot of healing. Um, and so I think it's, it's really powerful. Um, the times that I've, you know, my experiences with it have been incredibly powerful. You know, I've worked with veterans that have used this and the impact, I mean, they were able to show up in a way and put their guard down in a way that I hadn't seen through traditional talk therapy. And so, again, it's 
it's a powerful thing. It's a powerful model. And I just, I would encourage people to go out and do some research on it, you know, look at it. Um, because it, it allows our brain to be creative in our healing process. And when we allow our creativity to show up, again, we're using parts of our brain that is not traditionally used in our day-to-day living. And so it just, I'm always amazed at what people can come up with as part of their healing. And again, it speaks back to my belief in that intuitively we can find our answers. We need sometimes some guidance in that. And that's what I try to do. And yet, ultimately, we know how to get there when we have that that path. And ART is different in that it's very directive in that process and yet allows you to still have your your freedom to go in a direction that you need to go for healing. First off, to make it very clear, so we're calling it ART because it is not art therapy, which... <laughs> Will turn some of the people off in here, right? I've been told many times you guys do Which art therapy. Which is cool, though, by the way. If you are willing to actually do it, yes, yeah. yes. But a majority of men like us don't. Right. I'm not doing that shit. So very different there. I want to make that distinction. Um, but I, I guess a question I had for you was: I mean, the goal is to get through triggers and memories and traumatic incidents really quickly. Right. Like that's, I mean, you're hundred percent right. They don't have money, time, energy, capability to take off. I mean, have you seen it work specifically for like more, if you have the experience like combat related or childhood, like, or does it start in childhood and go to, you know, a traumatic incident that somebody had on the job? Like what's that process there? So in order for ART to be successful, you need three things, right? You need to be able to visualize an experience in your life and have a visualization of that, meaning being able to see a beginning and a middle and an end of a memory. And then you need to be able to do the eye movements, which is a little bit similar to EMDR, a little bit different, and then a willingness or motivation for change. That's really all you need in order for it to be effective. And then I think another part in that when we go in and we do this type of work and we're, we're working with memory, it's really important to be clear, you're not going to lose the facts of the memory. You'll still retain the factual side, the logic side of your memory. What we do in working with this is allow people to release those sensations and triggers associated with the memory. And so that's where I think the effectiveness comes in is because you're still going to remember, like you're going to know the facts. And when you think about it, you're not going to get caught up in the the emotions, the flooding, the, the body sensations or the trauma associated with that. You can look at it and go, yeah, that happened. And it's not controlling me anymore. You know, I, would, I think one of the things that uh, intrigues me because I've not done ART um, I have done art therapy, but I have not done ART. The, <laughs> the, uh, the, um, I think one of the things that, that really, um, I found encouraging about EMDR, uh, and I'm going to ask you that as a question kind of, but, but set this up. I think one of the things that I found good about EMDR is you didn't have to go through all this blabber fest of, of, pouring everything out in, you know, 10 sessions to get to one uh, EMDR session. You could sit down and and one of the greatest EMDR sessions, probably arguably one of my most powerful EMDR sessions, um, was one session with a new clinician uh, that I sat down with him and said, (laughs) I said, this is, this is bugging the shit out of me. And it's deep. I mean, more than just, I can put words to, and he said, let's EMDR that. I guess the point where I'm going with this is, as I hear what you're saying is this condenses down. You don't have to do a lot of pregame, you know, hours and hours and sessions and sessions of pregame. You can take a client, walk me through that. What, what does some, maybe a session or two or three, is that what, is that what we're talking about here with ART or is there a lot of buildup to this as well? 
No, you're exactly right. It is someone can come in and they don't even have to tell me any details at all about what it is that they're trying to work on as their problem. You know, I just need kind of a general thing, you know, and they can just say it's trauma, loss of life, you know, just something, anxiety, depression, and I don't have to know any details about it for, to, for it to be effective, which is why I think it has had such a tremendous effect. It's an evidence-based therapeutic model because they've done tons of research, but this is why I think it's so affected with military and first responders is because one of the things that happens when we're in trauma is it impacts our language part of our brain which is why people get so stuck in telling their stories, right? Is because that speech part, that language part of, of you know, hey, describe this to me. This works differently than talk therapy because, again, like I said, my belief is that you can't always think your way through trauma. You've got to feel it, and this helps to do that. And so, yeah, you don't even have to, like, there's not a lot of dialogue in it, and it's still crazy effective i mean i've seen it i'm a well and and i love the fact that this has been uh i didn't realize before we had talked i didn't realize this was such an a uh is it pretty new is it i mean is this or has this been around i know shapiro's emdr work what started in the 80s that is that right yeah am i off on that no and and and, uh so the fact that you know walter reed's already done um you know accepted it maybe i don't know if that's the right word or not but is looking at this and promoting saying, Hey, this is a good option for folks out here. Uh, you know, that's, that's big. That's, that's a big deal. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, so, so some therapeutic models are not necessarily considered evidence-based. Right. And I just make that distinction because if anybody's like, okay, what is this? Like, it's important to know that it's important to know, like people have gone out and done the research, they've replicated the results and they find it effective. Yeah. A lot of credibility. Right. Validated. Right. Sure. Right. And why they, again, like it's been sort of targeted towards military and first responders is because the trauma there is so significant and layered that to try to verbalize that, right, or paint the picture of that using language can be so difficult for the person. And again, that kind of shuts them down. And so with ART, like, we don't have to do any of that. You don't have to do any of that. You know, you can. There's points in it where you can. There'll be opportunity you can share with me, you know, or whoever the person is doing it, um, you know, what it is you're experiencing or feeling or thinking. And it's not designed around that. That's not what makes it necessarily effective. And so, again, I think it's it's powerful in that way to remind a person, like, hey, I do have what I need for this healing process. And again, I just needed some guidance. And that, again, gives a lot of people hope. That is uh, that is so powerful. And I love the fact that uh, uh, we can sit here and, and bring this to the table for our listeners. And as we're kind of wrapping this up, Marin, thank you so much for uh, introducing this um, uh, concept to us. Um, I, I always try to leave... Um, the, the listeners with some tips, especially when I have, you know, passionate professionals on here to say, and I love the grief concept of, you know, if we're, if we're talking about grief, I'm going to circle us back here. And I know we talked about ART and and great conversation there, but, you know, grief really uh, impacts a lot of people. And we, I don't feel like we talk about it enough. And I just want to give you the opportunity to, if you have one or two or three tips for folks out there, you know, so, hey, that could be me, or it is me, and my life sucks. What can what can they do to kind of recognize this grief and start working through uh, living a life of, of peace and hope? What, what would some of those be for you? So I think I would go, like, kind of, I mean, there's a lot, but I think my top three, which I personally go to and, you know, talk a lot about, is the practice of mindfulness, being present in the moment with your grief. And allowing, you know, be intentional about that, recognizing it for what it is and allowing yourself doing what you can to encourage yourself in feeling it and labeling it. You know, they say name it to tame it. 
So getting clear about that. The second one I would say is the practice of self-compassion. You know, talking in those moments, we're so, you know, we can be so compassionate to other people and yet we're so hard on ourselves. And so talking to ourselves the way we would talk to someone we love. Like, and, and the reason I love self-compassion and it's different than for, for me, it's different than affirmations is because I can be really authentic in my self-compassion. I can say to myself, you know what? I'm feeling overwhelmed. I'm struggling with grief right now. And that's hard for me. And I want to show up this way. And I'm not able to right now. And I need to understand that and find compassion in that moment to allow myself to figure out, again, what is going to be the next step for me that's going to be healthy. Because our critic's voice, and this is one thing, there's a few things I'm really black and white on. This is one, our critic's voice is never helpful. It doesn't make us better. It doesn't make us better people. It doesn't actually motivate us. You know, it's harmful. And also our critic's voice sounds like our voice as adults, but it never started there. So self-compassion. And then I would just say time, you know, finding the time and to express our grief. You know, we talked a little bit about creativity, and I think this is where our brain can be really powerful. And we don't use creativity and creativity, not in the sense of I do, you know, I draw art or paint or, you know, but creativity can be anything that comes from within that expresses our authenticity. And so expanding that definition a little bit, but being creative of like, how do I express my grief? Like, what do I need to do? Rituals, a memorial, something, but something, you know, journaling about it, like something that is unique to ourselves and our, our ability to create. You know, I tell people all the time, you don't, you don't know what your niche is there. So you have to try on a lot of things for that. And to, to do that actually takes a form of bravery. You have to, you have to lean into some things that are uncomfortable to find, ah, this, this is my thing. This is my thing. And we do that in a lot of area, other areas of life, you know, go, am I a sports guy? Am I a book guy? Am I, a, you know, but for this, we, we just really, really struggle leaning into finding what our, what our really thing is to help us through that. So man, great advice, powerful advice. Marion, thanks so much for coming on. This has been an absolute delight of a conversation and I appreciate you being so transparent with us about, you know, your experiences with your dad and your brother. So thank you for that. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Awesome. Chateau Health and Wellness is a 16-bed treatment facility nestled in the foothills of the Wasatch Mountains in Midway, Utah. Chateau's first responder resiliency program is designed to treat the unique challenges and issues that first responders encounter in the course of their careers. Chateau's comprehensive and highly individualized approach to treatment addresses more than just the presenting issues. It addresses the why. Each of their seasoned, trauma-trained, and culturally competent therapists utilize evidence-based, specialized therapies to treat trauma at its core and enable clients to begin the healing process while developing a resilient and healthy relationship with stress. Chateau Health and Wellness is trusted by departments and agencies from around the country to treat responders and veterans. In fact, it is one of only a handful of facilities nationwide that is vetted and approved to treat members of the Fraternal Order of Police. For more information or to speak to a representative, go to chateaurecovery.com or call 888-507-5031.